Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis 6, 11 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second and third decks. For behold... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Gotta be honest, my arm is asleep um, <laughs> from holding up side. I literally, my arm was shaking. I was like, dude, what did you eat this morning again? Um, well, good morning. My name is Gabe Coyle. It is a pleasure to be together with you. And, you know, this is a tough story. The moment I think I realized that real people and real animals were drowned. I struggled to understand why. Um, when I was in second grade, I went to a camp, and uh, I went, it was, there was this pool there, and I really wanted to impress the lifeguard, and I wanted to show her how great of a swimmer I was, and so I was going to, like, go and do a couple laps and, like, you know, do that strategically so I could smile up at her at the same time. The only problem is I'm a terrible swimmer, um, so I jumped in, and I just sunk down. Uh, I was kind of like squints from Sandlot, but it was a complete accident, um, and she had to come in and literally, like, save me, because I, I was breathing in water. It was, it was pretty traumatic um, and really embarrassing, and now I want you to imagine that the world over. I mean, what kind of picture of our God, the God of the Bible, does this paint? Like, how are we supposed to navigate this? How do we understand this? And as Christians, there's been three primary ways um, we've sought to kind of navigate the tensions when, when, when telling and retelling this moment in history as portrayed in Scripture. The first on a day like today is to kind of give like the Mother's Day version, which is kind of turn the Noah story into a cutesy story or maybe a far side a cartoon, which, by the way, this is my favorite one. It's up on the screen. Uh, I love Noah says, well, so much for the unicorns. But from now on, all carnivores will be confined to sea deck. 
That's a dad joke. I love it so much. My kids love unicorns, and it made my daughter cry. So there's one way you can go about telling the story is to make it really cutesy to kind of sharp, you know, smooth out the rough edges, make it laughable, make it safe. Another way people have gone about this moment in history is to kind of do the judgment version, which is like human beings are awful, and God had every right to drown everybody. Um, and good thing he promised not to do it again because he could, you know, like, and then all of a sudden I end with my finger pointed out at everybody. Um, that's another way. And then there's the, the third way, which is the good old-fashioned Jesus juke, which this is, it's real common. It's been around for a while. It's like, hey, the God of the Old Testament is this cantankerous old deity. Don't pay attention to him, you know. That's so prehistoric. Look at Jesus. You know, Jesus is pretty nice. Um, but here's the deal. With either of those three versions, none of them really do justice to what's happening here in this story. You, you can't get around it. The, the God of the Bible is involved, is the primary engagement, is, is the one carrying out this action here in this story. You can't hide him. You can't sugarcoat it. It's really intense. And if you want to come to know Jesus, Jesus consistently points back to the Old Testament to say, this is who I am. When you look through Jesus, you get a window to who God is. And when you look at the Old Testament, we should have expectations to who Jesus is. It's the same God throughout the whole of the Bible. And that tension between Jesus and the God of the Old Testament, that this tension that people portray, it doesn't just show up when Jesus steps on the scene. It's actually right here in Genesis. <laughs> because listen, as we've been walking through this book of Genesis, what have we seen already? We've seen a God who creates a world perfect and good and beautiful and he makes human beings very intimately and, and makes them gorgeous and makes them beautiful and pointing back to him and, and he makes a good world that's, that's for our good. And then he even when we, when we sin and it all goes to pot, he provides a covering. It's the same God at the beginning of Genesis that is the God that presides over the flood in the middle of Genesis. So what are we to do here? What kind of picture of God are we presented? How are we to understand the God of the Bible? And while it may feel like a tension to us, to God, he's presenting who he is consistently across history. And so today we're going to walk through this text and we're going to see three insights to who God is or three expectations we should have when we come to understand our God. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. If you are using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 5. And we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now imagine this. God who created, who designed human beings beautifully, intricately, is watching atrocity after atrocity be being committed one against another. And then when he looks into their hearts, when he looks at the very intentions of the heart, what do we see? He only sees evil continuously. It's like a mother who watches one son murder another son or a grandmother who watches her grandchildren beat up on each other. But even that doesn't even get to it because we're talking about God who's perfect in his love and brilliant in his justice. So how does God respond? 
We read here in the text, in the verses that were just read for us, that God is sorry he's made humankind, and it grieves him to his heart. Now, God isn't, he doesn't just react to situations. He's all-knowing. And as he's guiding the authors of Scripture, he's consistently seeking to paint a picture of who he actually is so we can deeply understand who he is to the core. And what he wants us to understand in this moment is that this kind of activity, this type of brokenness breaks his heart to the very core. He wants us to know he's experiencing pain here. He wants us to know that this is never the way he designed his world to be. That this sort of atrocity, this kind of violence is not the world he created, but it is the world as it has become. And so God makes a very intentional decision. He doesn't blow off the handle. He doesn't lose his cool. We read in verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man or humankind whom I have created from the face of the land Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, in the other flood narratives that are around in pagan traditions at the time, yes, there are other flood narratives that are around um, that are contemporary to when Moses is writing this. They are, the reason the flood comes is because the gods are just cantankerous and they're tired of human beings making noise. They literally are trying to take a nap, and they think, oh, this ought to shut those humans up if we just send a flood. Now, that sort of picture of a cantankerous, grumpy God, or maybe the way that I act when my kids try to wake me up on my Saturday afternoon nap, like those kinds of pictures of God is not what we are seeing here in our text. No, the Hebrew is slowing us down. And it's trying to portray just how awful things have begun, just how awful things have become and how broken the world is. What happened? Why is this so terrible and awful? Go up to verses 1 through 4 with me of chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they choose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, what in the world is going on there, right? That is weird. Um, You read that, and you think, okay, this is where I step away. If you're like reading through the Bible in a year, you may get to this passage and call it quits, right? Like this is, it's strange. So what's going on here? Hebrew scholars give two primary options, okay? When they look at the text and the broader flow of the narrative. The first is that there are angels, these sons of God, who take on human flesh and have intercourse with women, human women, and then they procreate. This is like the fall of the angelic realm. These fallen angels lead this major rebellion against God, and they're trying to now create a supercharged human race to undo what God has done. And their offspring are called Nephilim. Now, if you have a Bible that has footnotes, it may even say giants. It's these mega creatures, right, that are carrying out massive injustice on a global scale. That's one option. 
The other option is that the sons of God is another way of talking about human kings who have taken on massive influence and these daughters of men are their harems. And so they are now exercising injustice on a massive scale across the globe through their kingdom reign. Now, regardless of what viewpoint you hold, or maybe, maybe it could be a mixture of the two of those, no, no matter what, you, what view you hold, one thing that's consistent is that there is a massive amount of injustice and violence and brutality that is going on at this time. Think about some of the worst atrocities that have happened in our day and age. The Holocaust, genocide, lynchings. It's worse than that. I mean, this is, this is like untold bloodshed and atrocities that are going on here. And God cannot sit idly by any longer. His patience isn't just worn thin, it's worn out. And this is really important. This is our first insight we have about who God is. God's patience always has a limit. God's patience always has a limit. Now, it's not like you and me where God's going to blow off the handle or he's going to lose his cool or he's just going to be reactionary and explode like a volcano. No, but he will decisively act. And so we see it here. God's patience always has a limit. But here's something else that's really important, okay? When we get that, we so instantly go to kind of our own lives. But we need to understand that God's limit is greater than yours and mine. When you look across the pages of Scripture and you look across history, the greatest complaint that human beings have with God is not that His judgment is too harsh, but that it has not come quick enough. God's limit to His patience is way beyond ours. If you go to the Psalms, which frankly, if you've never read the Psalms, it's one of the most vulnerable transparent wrestlings with God you'll ever find. When you come to, to these emotions that you can't put words to, read the Psalms. Let the Psalms guide your language and your conversation with God. And often you'll find the psalmist who's experienced injustice. And what's the common refrain? How long, O Lord? How long will you forget me forever? Will you bring your justice? Will you bring your pain? Will you bring your righteous indignation against these evildoers who are undoing me? When are you going to show up, God? When are you going to bring your judgment? God's patience always has a limit. It's just a lot greater than yours and mine. And when God actually goes about revealing himself verbatim, when he goes actually verbally to describe his character, if you jump over to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, the Lord passes in front of Moses and, and Yahweh, the Lord, describes himself to us. This is how God self-discloses himself. Yahweh, Yahweh, or the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we'd love for it to stop there. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God in his character is slow to anger. His limit is greater than ours to how much he can long suffer with injustice as he provides an avenue for grace. But just because he's slow to anger doesn't mean he never gets angry. 
And that's really important. Once again, don't let toxic perspectives of abuse and anger often perpetuated by human beings shadow your understanding of a righteous indignation from a perfect and holy God. There is a moment where God says enough is enough and he takes up the sword. Mirzlov Volf, one of the most prominent theologians of our day here in the Western world, brilliantly writes, as he knows of the Croatian warfare and pain there. He says, violence thrives today. So he was Croatian, so he experienced that in his family. That's why I say that. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. You see, we can struggle with God because we can think that His judgment is too harsh, maybe when it comes to ourselves. And we can talk to God and say, you know what, God, you understand me. You get where I'm coming from. You know, you're good, we're good, we're good, right? Or we can struggle with God because we don't feel like his judgment comes quick enough. God, where are you? Do you see the violence that I see? Why aren't you showing up? Why aren't you making this right? But what's true in this story and what's true across the whole biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation is that you and I find ourselves on the wrong side of this story. We have rebelled against our Creator King and deserve His judgment. We deserve the flood. And you can't just go to Jesus and kind of juke your way out of this. If you go to Matthew chapter, write this down, Matthew chapter 24, verses 38 through 40, Jesus, when he talks about his return, says, when I come back, it'll be like the days of Noah. Jesus goes back to this narrative. And when he comes back, not everybody's going to be saved. He talks about moments where there are going to be two in a field. One's going to be snatched and the other will remain. And another kind of flood, although it will not be exactly like this, will come. If we want to understand Jesus, you need to let Jesus define himself. And when he comes to define himself, he goes back to the flood narrative to describe himself as the God who has been true throughout history. Which, by the way, why a flood? Have you ever asked that question? Why a flood? Like, out of all the ways, why a flood? I want to propose to you this morning that, or maybe ask a question, what if one of the darkest moments of judgment if we understand that God's patience has a limit, what if one of the darkest moments of judgment is that God gives us exactly what we want to the fullest extent and it destroys us? Look with me here at the text that was read for us in Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 through 12. I'll read that once again. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now this word corrupt, it shows up three times in these two verses. At its heart, it means a cold-blooded and unscrupulous infringement of the personal rights of others. The root word for corrupt shares the root for the word destroy. The people who are occupying the planet, 
were destroying themselves and undoing all of creation. And God gave them exactly what they wanted. Now, to be clear, none of them would have said, hey, I'd love a worldwide flood. Now, you know, I would love like just destruction to come raining down on me. But so often when we chase after broken desires, it undoes ourselves and it undoes the world around us. You remember the last time, if you've been walking through with us through Genesis, the last time the world was covered in water? Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Before God brought order out of chaos and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, they were chasing after broken desires, dismantling one another, undoing God's world, and God said, fine, you can have an undone world. Before I put it all in order. And they were so blind to their own destruction that they could not see its logical end. You know, when I was in middle school, I wanted to be really cool. And so, uh, which I, maybe that's still true. Tyler will have to attest. But um, <laughs> I just really stink at it, by the way, uh, if you didn't pick up on that already. Um, but one of these, it was one day after school and my ride was late for my buddy and I, and they had basketball tryouts. And so my buddy and I were like, well, we still got our gym clothes here. Uh, we'll try out for the basketball team. And it was a small school. Um, and so we tried out for the basketball team and we made it. I was just athletic enough to accidentally make the basketball team in middle school, which was great for like a day. Because here's the thing, I don't like basketball. I'm sorry, maybe I made some enemies, and I'm really bad at it. Somehow, I just could run. I think that's what got me on the basketball team. And uh, after seeing some of my friends cry because they didn't make the basketball team, and talking to my mom, she would not let me quit. She's like, if you did this as a joke, you're following it through. It's like, oh, man. So I had to go through practice after practice, not play, playing a sport I didn't really enjoy. And then I always warmed the bench because I wasn't that good. So I got exactly what I wanted, to be on the basketball team, but it was awful. What a waste of time. Sorry if you like basketball. But that is a great example that I got exactly what I wanted, but it was not what I wanted. What do you want out of life? Do you know? Do you know where it's, where it's sending you, where, where, what its end is? Be careful what you chase. Because listen, God's patience always has a limit. And it's greater than yours and mine, to be sure. But God's patience may wear out. And he may give you exactly what you're chasing, and it might destroy you. Do you know what you're chasing for and what you long for and what you want out of life? God might give it to you. And it may not be anything what you thought you wanted. There are some words of hope here, though, because... The same God whose patience has a limit is the same God who always provides an ark. And let's look at that together. You know, you, you find after God makes this bold statement that he's going to blot out all of humanity, then we read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. Now, Noah didn't see, you know, wasn't discerning of the times and was the first meteorologist to discover that a storm was a brewing. Like, that's not the reason he made an ark. 
Instead, what we read is that Noah walked with God. That's the key catalyst behind the whole ark narrative. Now, what on earth does it mean to walk with God, right? This is a metaphor when we're talking about engaging with God. One thing is it should do is it should point us back to the garden when God did walk with Adam and Eve in harmony without shame. It was something beautiful. It's what human beings were designed to do was to actually have this intimate relationship with God. But what does it look like here when we come to understand Noah's life? The primary characteristic that we see on display of Noah and what it means to walk with God is that whenever God spoke, Noah obeyed every single thing. Obedience. Now, I want to remind us, and I often forget this as I'm reading it, is that this book and the series of books that make up Scripture wasn't printed off on a mass copier and a machine. But as a reminder, this was written down by hand and copied meticulously. We have manuscripts all the way back to the first and second. I mean, old, old manuscripts that have an unbelievable accuracy with our current text. I mean, there's unbelievable attention to detail. And so when you get to Genesis, as we heard read for us earlier, chapter 6, verses 14 through 21, and you have the details about gopher wood and how he goes through that. The point of all those details on what Noah made the ark out of and how he made the ark isn't so that we can make a replica and put it somewhere in the United States, as neat as that might be. I'm not, nothing to bag it, you know, whatever. But, but the main point comes when you get to Genesis chapter 6, verse 22. After all of this high detail, we get to Genesis chapter 6, 22, and what do we read? Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Detail, detail, detail. He doesn't stop and give some objections. We don't see that anywhere. As crazy as it might have seemed, he's making some giant boat, the biggest boat maybe people had ever seen in the middle of nowhere, nowhere near any body of water. And he's doing all of this until we get to Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, and we read, "Go." God says to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. No objection, no explanation. Actually, know what's interesting? Noah never says a word. Go looking for Noah's speech in these early chapters. Noah never says a word. He just obeys. And over and over again we read, and Noah obeyed all that God commanded him. Obedience, obedience, obedience. And then you get to Genesis chapter 7, verse 16, where the Lord shuts the door of the ark like a mother tucking in her children with security and safety. And we see that God always provides an ark for those who walk with him. Will you go in? I mean, this is the question that's kind of resonating off the text. Will you go in? And I don't want to be clear. God actually doesn't provide like, it's not like you're choosing an ark. Do we see that here? Instead, what, it, what Noah's choosing is to walk with God. Even when people thought he was nuts. Doing it for years. Building this ark with no sign that anything's actually coming. For years before he actually has any validation that following God in this one direction was the way in which was actually going to bring about his redemption. Seen as absolutely nuts by the rest of the world. I mean, you don't get more crazy than building a boat in the middle of nowhere saying that there's a big flood coming. 
Like, those are the kinds of folks we say there's institutions for. I mean, like, there's, this is insane. But he walks with God, and God provides an ark. So maybe instead of asking the question, will you go in the ark, a better question is, are you walking with God? When you read what God has spoken and revealed in his word, do you obey? Are you looking for it? Are you always looking for the loophole? Are you kind of pushing it? It's like, yeah, but not today. When you come and you're reading God's word and the spirit of God actually brings together an application that resonates with the broader story of scripture, are you quick to obey? Are you quick to object? Are you trusting in God's provision, even if it seems as crazy as building an ark in the middle of nowhere? Do you trust him? Are you walking with him? Because listen, God will always provide an ark, but it's often at the end of a really long walk with him. That doesn't mean that there's a life without pain. That doesn't mean he's going to stop the flood. That doesn't mean you're not going to have any suffering. But he will not abandon his own in the end. And so we come to this unbelievable tension, or at least it's a tension to us in the text, of God's perfect justice and his judgment, and one day his patience will reach its limit. And then simultaneously his unbelievable grace where he will always provide an ark for those who walk with him. How are we to navigate that? How are both possible? Because listen, here's another part that doesn't always show up in like the Mother's Day version of the Noah story. This little tidbit about Noah after he gets out of the boat, plants a vineyard, goes on a bender, and his kids find him buck naked. Like, I don't know about you, but that's not going to get you into the Father's fall, you know, Hall of Fame kind of way to go. Like, hey, my dad just got really drunk last night. And uh, like, no. Noah's got his own corruption issues. He's got his own evil. He's got his own brokenness. So why does God save him? If God's patience really does have a limit, and yet he always provides an ark, how do both of these fit together? And frankly, this is why I love the Christian faith. Because here we have one of the most robust frameworks to have both a perfectly just God and an unbelievably gracious God together. Let's see how. You know, there's this interesting statement when you get to Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. When all of, all of life has ceased except for Noah, his family, and some animals just bobbing around on this little ark, you know, you read in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, but God remembered Noah. God remembers a lot of people throughout Scripture, he remembers Abraham a little bit later in Genesis when, Je when Abraham finds himself in trouble. We read that God remembers Rachel when she's seeking to conceive and to have a child. You see, when God remembers, it's not like when we forget something. It's not like I went to the store and realized I left the stove on. Ah, yikes. You know, like it's not that kind of cognitive remembering. When God remembers, it means he's actively working to save his people, the people he's made a specific promise to, to save them from death or trouble. God's remembering is always intentional action in light of a previous promise to someone to save or deliver them. And in Genesis 6, God had promised Noah 
that he wasn't going to die in the flood, that his family was going to be saved. And in Genesis chapter 8, if you follow it along, it's God who's the one who guides the ark through the waters. It's God who brings Noah and his fanimal, fanimal? His family animals, there you go, <laughs> to the shore, and they walk out on dry land. And here we find one of the most amazing comforts to you and to me. Here's our third characteristic, this third aspect of who our God is. Our God always remembers his promises. Always. He never forgets, ever, ever. It may feel like it's taking too long. It may feel like it didn't come at the timing I wanted or in the particular way I'd planned, but he never, ever, ever forgets his promises. He always remembers his promises, which brings unbelievable comfort when you come to Genesis chapter 9, which is maybe one of the most well-known parts of the Noah story because it's easy as rosy cheeks. You know, there's all this color in the sky. You know, God makes a promise to Noah and then through Noah to all of humanity that he'll never bring this kind of judgment where he'll flood the earth with water again. And what was the sign that he would never do this again? We actually saw the sign in the sky like a week ago. Did you see the double rainbow that was in Kansas City? Like, it was beautiful. I was actually walking my dog and I saw two of my neighbors out and they're like, oh my goodness. I was like, whoa. It's this beautiful sign that every generation of human beings have seen where God said, I put this sign in the sky as a symbol that I will not do what I've done ever again. And how on earth can God keep that promise? How can he actually keep his promise when you and I have a propensity to destroy the world, to make a mess of things? And God's patience really does have a limit. And the atrocities that continue to be taken out throughout history or around the world and the grave injustices that are continuing to perpetuate today in our world, how is that even possible? It all comes down to one man. One man who had every right to just get on the ark and to escape God's judgment, but instead chose to replace, take so many, put them on the ark, and then say, let your judgment flood me instead. We come with one of the most robust and brilliant understandings of who our God is, is that he is perfectly just and unbelievably gracious when Jesus, the God-man, entered creation, fully human, fully God, in order to die for us. When he had every right to escape God's judgment, he drank deeply of God's wrath on the cross for you and for me. And by his blood, he redeemed us. He purchased our salvation. And God makes it abundantly clear that everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. And praise God, God always remembers his promises. This is the God of the Bible. The one whose yes has a limit to his patience, but it has provided a way of escape. As he always provides a way of escape. And he will always remember his promises. And his promise has never been more clear in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus for all who hold fast to him. For there justice is satisfied and grace is freed. What are you chasing in life? Hear Jesus' invitation to come and follow me, to walk with me, and there find life. If you want to walk with God, walk with his son. There find grace and there see the satisfaction of God's justice all available to you and to I. And only then will we be able to say 
as the old hymn sings, when my feeble life is over, time for me will be no more. Guide me gently, safely over to thy kingdom's shore, to thy shore. Let's pray. God, we praise you that you are long-suffering. We praise you that your patience is greater than ours. We praise you that you are just and will not always idly sit by. We praise you that you provide an avenue of escape and open up your invitation to come to you, all of us who are weary and heavy laden, and so find rest. We praise you that you always remember your promises. You are a good and holy God. May we walk with you by embracing your son. And may we obey your word in all that it portrays. Without objection, without excuse. Seeking to explain away the spots that don't mit and fit our culture. But may we instead, even if it seems crazy to an onlooking world, trust you for our provision and so find life. God, if there are those here today who are exploring the Christian faith, may they see a good and righteous God, one who is worthy of their worship, and may they surrender. And for those who have walked with God, may we be reinvigorated in our steps, more committed to our calling, and more submissive to your will. We love you, God. Thank you for your grace and your justice. Amen.